sound doctrine, truth doesn't always feel good because a lot of times it confronts our selfish, sinful nature. Truth hurts us before it heals us. It forces us to conform to it, it didn't conform to us. God's word tells us the standards by which God lives. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Manna, if you would open to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to, um, today and next week, Lord willing, we'll finish the book and then we'll jump into Ephesians after that. Just a little historical context, the Apostle Paul is nearing his last days on earth. He's being rearrested. He's confined in the dungeon in the Mamertine prison in Rome. So he's writing this from prison. Only Luke is with him. He's literally abandoned by everybody else. He's been sentenced to death by Nero, the Roman emperor. He expects to die within days. So his death is imminent and he knows that. He is passing the baton of spiritual leadership to his son in the faith, Timothy, a young pastor who's pastoring the church at Ephesus. This church at Ephesus has serious trouble. Satan's busy at work in the church at Ephesus, deceiving people. There were many false teachers who were teaching mythical legends, human speculations, anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul understands that Satan will always attempt to destroy God's work by discrediting God's word. That's his standard addendum. Satan will always attack God's word by adding to it, subtracting from it, distorting it, or as he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden, just plain denying it. Now earlier, Paul had written the first uh, uh, letter to Timothy, and earlier he had written a letter to the church at Ephesus. That's called Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians. And in that letter, he had told them in chapter 6, Church at Ephesus, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And he lists all the armor, the shield of faith, helmet, salvation, etc., etc. And the last weapon he mentions, it's the only one that is used for both defense and offense, is the sword of the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The Holy Spirit crafted the sword, and that's why it's called the sword of the Spirit. And you have the most powerful tool in God's arsenal in your lap or on your phone. And it needs to be in your heart and in your mind so that you can handle it with expertise under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So Christians, we are commanded to know God's word intimately so we can use it effectively in battle. Jesus is our model. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, Satan came to him, tempted him, tried to break him down. Three times, Satan parried Satan's temptation and cut Satan to the quick with one weapon, the Word of God. He quoted the all-powerful Word of God to Satan three times and vanquished him. So the spiritual health of God's people depends on them knowing and doing what God says in his word. There is no problem that the church faces, this or any other church faces, that cannot be fixed simply by knowing and doing what God says in his word. So Paul now is commanding Timothy in this last chapter almost of the last letter he's going to write before he goes to heaven. He says, Timothy, I'm going to tell you what your priorities are. Number one. 
Make the proclamation of God's word the highest priority in your ministry. Chapter 4, verse 1, let's pick up the narrative. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Here's the principle. In light of eternal judgment, there is no higher priority than proclaiming and obeying God's word. Let's repeat. In light of eternal judgment, there is no greater priority than proclaiming and obeying God's word. So Paul is going to begin Timothy, the letter, the, this exhortation to Timothy by telling him why he should preach God's word. And he says, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because eternal judgment is coming. This is almost the soberest charge that Paul has ever made. He basically says, I solemnly charge you. Now, that's a legal term. That's being in a court of law when you raise your right hand and you swear and vow and promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. God is my witness. So Paul is bringing Timothy into God's courtroom, the very judgment seat of heaven, and he's calling on Almighty God and Jesus Christ the judge as his witnesses. He says, in their presence, I command you, preach God's word. In light of certain judgment, there is nothing more important than preaching the gospel. After all, every single person on planet Earth, all seven billion plus currently alive, and everybody throughout history, will stand before God's judgment seat. It's just talking a question of when. This morning will be the last sunrise for about 150,000 people on Earth today. On average, 151,650 people will leave this planet every single day. That's about 55.5 million people that stand before God every year. Someday, my name, your name, is on that departure date. Facing God is not optional. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed, divinely appointed, for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, this is not a very popular concept under culture, but it's essential to understand how you make decisions today. All decisions should be made in light of eternity. This life is passing away quickly. Everyone is going to have a last day. Everyone needs to know the way to heaven before they leave earth. People need to know that there's an infinite personal God. People need to know that this infinite personal God is both just and completely loving. They need to know that their sins have separated them from God because holy God cannot tolerate evil. People need to know that God's standard is moral perfection and no one is perfect. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's standards. However, people also need to know that God loves sinful people. And he sent his son Jesus to earth to pay the penalty for, his, for their sins by dying in their place on their cross. People need to know that if people accept Jesus' payment for their sins, their broken relationship with God will be reconciled. They also need to know that if they reject Jesus' payment for their sins, they're choosing to pay for their own sins themselves and being separated from God. They need to know that Jesus, the Savior of mankind, is also Jesus, Jesus, the judge of mankind. And Paul says, preach the word because if you don't tell them, how will they know? How will they know? They're going to leave here. They're going to stand before God. They need to know the way to heaven before they stand before God. John 5, 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, 
But he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son. And he, the Father, gave him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is Son of Man. Jesus is saying, Almighty God, the Father, my Father has given me the Savior. He's also given me the role, the authority, the position as judge. Now, God's going to judge two kinds of people. And there's only two kinds of people. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and those who have rejected Jesus Christ as Savior. That's it. Those who have rejected Jesus' payments for their sins will be judged by Jesus at the great white throne. Judgment. At the end of Christ's thousand-year reign on earth, Satan's going to be released from prison. He's going to organize the nations to make war on God's people. We call that the last battle. God's going to send down fire from heaven, destroy those who are opposed to him. He's going to cast Satan into the lake of fire. And following that will become to known as what is the last judgment. And there's been an enormous amount of literature written on the last judgment, paintings, sculptors. There's, it's a very, very common topic. Revelation 20 describes this. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead. This is John, the apostle, who has been given this great vision of the future by Almighty God himself. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. God is completely just. God keeps completely accurate records. At the last judgment, everyone will receive perfect justice. They will get exactly what they deserve. Now, these are for people who have rejected Jesus Christ's payment for their sins. For those who have accepted Jesus Christ's payment for their sins, they will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. The Apostle Paul is writing to believers at the Corinthian church, and he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And here's what motivates us, Timothy, and the church today. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We preach the gospel because we understand what's coming. Now, Jesus is not going to judge the lives of believers for their sin. If you know Jesus is your Savior, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but not for your sins. Your sins have been paid for at the cross. That's done. Nobody gets into heaven based on their good deeds. You get to heaven based on Christ's finished work on your behalf. He's already paid the penalty for their sins. Christ's judgment of believers is to grant them rewards based on the quality of the work and service they have done for Christ on earth. If you're looking for a cross-reference here, 1 Corinthians 3, excellent passage, very sobering. Revelation 14 is another one. They both basically say the same thing. What you do for Christ on earth matters in heaven. You get to heaven based on the finished work of Christ. What you experience, the rewards Jesus Christ gives you or the loss of those rewards depends on what you do down here. And 1 Corinthians 13, that great passage on love, 
seems to indicate very clearly that not so much what we do as why we do it matters to God. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, that's pretty sacrificial. If I surrender my body to be burned, I lay down my life. That's pretty, yeah, that's as good as it gets, right? But do not have love. Profits me nothing. So if my motive for serving Jesus and my motive for serving others is not love, Paul says, you gain nothing. It means nothing. However, there's no act of service that's greater or lesser in God's sight. Changing a diaper honors Jesus as much as preaching a sermon. If you do it because you love Jesus. So whatever work God's called you to do. I used to be a janitor. I scrubbed toilets. You can scrub toilets and honor Jesus. I've done it. I've also scrubbed toilets and whined and griped about it and did not honor Jesus when I was scrubbing the toilets. All right? You have people preaching sermons that their desire is to honor themselves and not Jesus. That doesn't cut any ice with God. There's no reward in doing anything unless our motive is to please Him. And if your motive is to please Him, then it doesn't matter what you do. It honors God, right? Correct? So the motive, if the motive is love for Jesus, the Lord says that matters in eternity. Both judgments for believers and unbelievers seem to indicate that there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell and degrees of reward in heaven based on how people respond to the truth they know. You can cross-reference Luke 12 on that. So Paul says, listen, preaching the gospel, Timothy, is a matter of life and death. In light of eternal judgment, in light of standing before God, you must preach the gospel. This is urgent. This is important because Jesus is not only the judge, Jesus is the king. It says Christ the king will appear and set up his kingdom. And this word appear is very interesting. It, it literally refers to a royal visit from the emperor. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a visit from the president, but where the president goes to visit, I mean, there's helicopters and there's, I mean, it, you can't believe all the preparations that have to be done. It is remarkable what kind of entourage is required to get the president from Washington to a particular location. The same with the queen and the Roman emperor was no different. Before there was going to be a royal visit to a town, I mean, they, they repaired everything in the town. They swept the streets. They painted the buildings. I mean, they picked up the garbage. The town looked like a postage stamp. It was so clean, getting ready for this royal visit. Paul says, Jesus Christ is going to appear. There's going to be a royal visit. And the whole town had to be perfectly in order for this royal inspection. Of course, the application for us is, Jesus Christ is coming back. We just don't know when. But if he does, when he does come back and he expects your life, could you face him eye to eye? Or would you hide your face in shame because you're holding on to some things that don't honor him? We need the word of God, Paul says, to cleanse us on a daily basis, to prepare us to meet our king. So Paul has said, Timothy, I want you to preach the gospel. Why? Because eternal judgment's coming. We're all going to face God. You need to preach. Now he's going to tell him what to preach. He says, preach God's word. Preach the word. 
Here's the principle. Always be prepared to tell people what the Bible says, not what you think. Then this is for me. Always be prepared to tell people what the Bible says, not what you think. The word preacher means literally to herald. It means to proclaim. It has a very, it has an aura of authority and gravity. All kings had heralds, you know, who went before him and they, they literally announced the message of the king. These heralds couldn't write the message. They were not allowed to edit the message. They were commanded to, you deliver the message. This is what the king says. That's what herald means. That's what the word preach means. We're to herald, proclaim the gospel. We don't get to edit it. God didn't say you get to make it up. God didn't say you can add your opinion to it. God said, I'm the king. Here's the message. Your job is what? Proclaim it. Herald it. Speak it. We're commanded to transmit to others the whole counsel of God, the entire contents of the Bible. You know, it's interesting. A number of years before this, Paul had a meeting on the beach with the elders of the same church. He had spent three years in this church in Ephesus. Paul had. He founded the church. And he's leaving now after three years. This is some years before what we're talking about right now. And he meets with them on the beach. And he says, I haven't held back anything when I preached God's word to you for the three years I've been with you. Acts 20, 26, he says, Therefore, he's talking to the Ephesian elders, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That means the entire purpose of God. If there were people at the church at Ephesus that wound up being separated from God from all eternity because they rejected the gospel, they could not go back to Paul and say, I didn't know because you didn't tell me. He said, I told you the whole counsel of God. I gave you the entire purpose of God. We talked about this last week. Every word in the Bible is God's word. Every word, every name, every place, every timeline, every comma, every semicolon is there by divine design. The Bible is an integrated message system designed by God, communicated by God himself. Paul said, look, I didn't omit, I didn't edit, I didn't alter, I didn't add. I just told it to you straight. I heralded the gospel, and that's our job. The story is told of Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a Swiss Reformed theologian. In the 30s, he was preaching on John 3.16, to a German audience in Germany in the 30s, the Nazis were in power. Even though many of the members of this church professed Christ, many in the church were going along with the persecution of the Jews by Hitler. And Karl Barth told them that Jesus was a Jew, and anyone who loved Jesus would not participate in evil treatment of the Jews. Many in this church walked out before he'd finished his sermon. And he was heavily criticized. His response in the paper was a single sentence. It was in the text. That's pretty good. God wrote it in the Bible. You don't need any other authority other than God himself. If it's written in the Bible, that's the sole basis of authority you need. In our own day, perhaps Billy Graham's greatest legacy was his consistent use of the phrase, the Bible says, he would say it over and over and over 
You never heard Billy say, I think, he always said, the Bible says, and God blessed Billy's ministry because Billy honored God's word and told people what the Bible says, period. Story is told of about an old American Indian who attended a church service one Sunday morning. The preacher's message lacked any real spiritual food, so he did a lot of shouting and pulpit pounding to cover up his lack of preparation. In fact, as someone has once said, this preacher preached up quite a storm. After the service, someone asked the Indian, who was a Christian, what he thought of the minister's message. Thinking for a moment, he summed up his opinion in six words. High wind. Big thunder. No rain. When you tell people what the Bible says, there's rain, and there's meat, and there's food. When you tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't have to add to it. You don't have to dress it up. You don't have to pretty it up. Just say what God says, right? Don't preach your words. Just proclaim His words. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be emotional. We're just the messengers. We're not the author. We didn't write the script. We just deliver the script, right? Just sow the seed and God will grow the crop. God himself has promised in Isaiah 55, this verse gives me such comfort. So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding the matter for which I sent it. When you tell people God's word, let God take his word and grow it in people's hearts and accomplish his purposes. See, God's word will always be successful. He just told us that. We just need to tell people what the Bible says. So Paul was told Timothy why to preach, because judgment's coming, what to preach, the whole counsel of God. Now he's going to tell him when to preach. In season and out of season. Preach whenever there is an opportunity. Be present. Be on the job. Be ready. He could have just said, be a Boy Scout. Because the Boy Scout motto is, always be prepared. Right? 1 Peter 3.15. Always being ready, prepared to make a defense, an explanation to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter says, live your life in such a way that it is different enough where people will ask. How come you're different? How come with cancer you have joy? How come with a broken heart you smile? Jesus is the answer. Be ready to give an explanation. Be ready to share the gospel. Paul says, share the gospel when it's convenient. Share the gospel when it's inconvenient. Share the gospel when it's expected. Share the gospel when it's unexpected. When you feel like it, when you don't feel like it. Because as a Christian, we are never off duty. We represent Christ wherever we are. People of faith, that's you and me in this room, we're part of God's spiritual paramedic unit. You know what paramedics do? They're on call, 24-7, ready to go and try and save someone's life. That's what Christians do. They represent Jesus Christ wherever they are. Because you never know when God's been working on someone's heart. And you are the one who's appointed to bring the life-giving gospel to them. You don't know when they're prepped or not prepped. Right? The Holy Spirit does. 
So our job is to be always ready to share the gospel because we don't know that God has prepared the soil and it's our job to share it with them. Put it in the ground. Paul is, share, is conveying a sense of urgency here when he says, preach the word in season and out of season. The 18th century evangelical preacher, John Berridge, he was called in by the Anglican bishop. He was part of the Anglican church and he was reproved. You can believe this for preaching at all hours of the day and night on every day of the week. You're only supposed to preach on Sundays. The rest of the time, if they wanted to hear the truth, let them show up on Sundays. Well, John Berridge didn't breathe it. He was preaching all the time, anywhere there was an opportunity. And the Anglican bishop called him in and reproved him. And John says, my Lord, I preach it only two times. The bishop pressed him. And which are they, Mr. Berridge? He quickly responded, in season and out of season, my Lord. Only two times. So Paul's told us, and Timothy, why to preach, what to preach, when to preach. Now he's going to tell us how to preach God's word. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Here's the principle. Tell people God's truth and keep loving them as they struggle to live according to the truth they now know. Tell people God's truth and keep loving them as they struggle to live according to the truth they now know. This is us. Yes? How many of you struggle to live according to the truth you now know? Of course, we all know more than we live up to. But that is the mission. As we need ongoing love as we struggle to live up to the truth we now know. And Paul says, gives us three words. Number one, reprove. Reprove is a legal term. It means you present your case with such effectiveness that your opponent is persuaded that your position is right. It means logically to persuade someone by speaking to their mind, their ability to reason. Reproof tells people what God says about their sin. It's diagnostic, right? Reproof means to expose the truth so that the person who's listening will be convicted of wrongdoing. You cannot fix a problem you know you don't have, so God's word tells us the problem. It's sin. Rebuke is stronger. Rebuke means to censure. It's, it's a pretty severe word. It means to admonish. This is a direct confrontation of somebody's conscience. It's a severe warning for a severe problem. That's when you go to somebody and say, your behavior is a sin against God. Stop it. That's rebuke. That is direct. And you say, well, I really don't like to do that. Well, Jesus did it. There are times, I mean, you don't do it all the time. You've heard of family interventions. You've got someone who's drinking or using drugs or whatever it is, and they are killing themselves, and we get the whole family together. I mean, aunts, uncles, cousins, and we do what we call an intervention, where we sit down and we say, your behavior is going to end in disaster. We love you. Stop it. That's what's rebuke is. It is a direct confrontation of sinful behavior that is going to end in disaster. See, God hates sin because sin kills his people. When, obviously, he hates it because it's a violation of his character, most of all, but he loves his children and he knows what it does to them. And when people persist in willful sin, they're declaring war on God. So reproof tells people God's diagnosis, the sin problem. Rebuke outlines the treatment plan. 
It says, repent, turn around, stop doing it. Paul says, then I want you to exhort. And this is the word paraclete. It means to come alongside. It means to appeal. It means to almost to plead. It's an appeal to the heart. It means to strongly encourage someone to do the right thing. It's speaking the truth, but with tenderness, with love. It, God's word always tells us the truth. But God tells us the truth because he loves us, right? Our motive to speak the truth to everyone should always be love. Uh, speaking the truth in love is like a scalpel that cuts people open in order to heal them. Speaking the truth without love is like a dagger that cuts people open in order to harm them. When you speak truth to people, they know if your tongue is a scalpel or a dagger. They know if you love them, right? Truth without love is harsh. It's just brutal. It's judgmental. And many times the church is guilty of speaking the truth. You're going to hell and I'm going to be glad to see you go. That's not how Jesus spoke the truth. When Jesus talked about hell, he wept because he loved the people. That's why he came. Speaking love without truth is just mushy. You know, everything's going to be okay. You don't need to worry. God loves you. You don't need to repent. Well, that's obviously not true. It may be warm and fuzzy, but it's not true. So we have to do both. We have to speak truth, but we have to speak it in love. And Paul says you have to continue to preach the gospel with great patience. It means having a high boiling point. It means putting up with people that are difficult. And all people are difficult. All people. And the most difficult one of all is the one in the mirror. Except you know that one. So, you know, you give them some slack. Those rest of those people, step up to the bar, right? So people require patience, especially you and me. I mean, Paul says, listen, you're going to preach the word with patience because change is hard. Change is difficult. It takes time for people to change. Jesus Christ hasn't given up on us, right? He says, Paul, Paul says, Timothy, don't give up on people. Don't give it. You have to be patient with them. It takes time for them to obey and for God to work in their heart. And this process of becoming like Jesus is going to take the rest of their life. So that's why we said keep loving people as they struggle to adapt their lives to the truth of God's word because it's a lifelong process. And Paul says, I want you to instruct them with great patience. Now, the word instruct here literally means to teach. It's talking about the contents of the Bible itself. So preaching, of course, is proclaiming the truth of God's word so people will obey it. But teaching is explaining it so people can understand it. See, we talked about this last week. God's truth is our greatest treasure. And the best way to preserve it is to proclaim and explain it to everyone. So Paul says, Timothy, I want you to preach and teach God's word. And then the next two verses, he says, God's people, you should welcome it and follow it. Verse 3. For the time will come when they, he's not talking about unbelievers, he's talking about people in the church, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Here's the principle. Decisions are directional. 
If I could just say one thing here, if I could impress on young people one thing, this would be it. Every decision in life is directional. It takes you on a path. The only problem is when we're young, we don't understand the consequences of our decisions. So we tend to make decisions that kick us a lot of scar tissue. Decisions are directional. When you stop listening to God's truth, you will start believing lies. Decisions are directional. When you stop listening to God's truth, you will start believing lies. So when God's people proclaim and explain truth, some people will accept it and obey it. Most won't. Most people are not going to listen to the gospel. You need to know that. Jesus said in Matthew 7, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. In Amos 8, God reveals the coming judgment on Israel for her repeated rejection of God's word. The nation of Israel had rejected God over and over and over and over and over. Hundreds of years of warnings. They still reject him. God says, you're going to the captivity for 70 years. And one of the consequences is, I'm going to take my word away from you. Acts 8. I'm sorry, Amos 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. That is judgment of great horror. To crave truth from God, and God says, I'm done. I'm not giving you any more truth. I'm not giving you any more revelation. You have rejected and rejected and rejected. See, when people repeatedly reject God, God always has the prerogative to withdraw himself from them. God never forces himself on anyone. God is a gentleman. He goes where he's invited, and he leaves when he's rejected. What does Revelation 3.20 say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, the door to the heart is open from the inside, not the outside. God will never force his way into your life. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will fellowship with him and eat with me. But you have to decide to open the door. And I know most of you in this room have done that as Christians. Guess what? Every single day, the Holy Spirit knocks on your heart and says, that's sin, repent. Go talk to that person. This verse that you just read, this is what I want you to do with that. Every day he knocks on the door as his children, and we can decide to open the door and say, Lord, come into my heart, take control of it. Or we can say, no, thank you. I think I want to live for myself today. Door to the heart is open from the inside. Never take access to God's word for granted. See, when we're confronted by God's word, you cannot remain neutral. You either accept it or reject it. And that decision is a directional decision. When you accept and obey God's word, you know what happens? You move closer to God. When you reject and disobey God's word, you move further away from God. Now, which decision do you think would be wiser? Right? See, when we listen to lies, it degrades our ability to even recognize the truth. That's why so few elderly people come to Christ. 
They've been listening to lies for 50, 60, 70 years. Very, very few people, elderly people, come to Christ. Our contemporary culture has rejected the very existence of God. And, of course, they're following after myths, human speculations. And, and as we say, when you uh, sin, you get stupid. And when you sin more, you get stupider. In our culture, would you say this is a culture of wisdom or foolishness? Yeah. Today, there are countless gurus, experts, and consultants who will tell you whatever you want to hear for a fee. And the line out the door to pay for those services is extensive. You know, when you watch it, have you ever just watched the daily news flow just for 30 minutes? I know more because you might open your veins with a rusty scalpel. But when you look at the news flow, <laughs> 30 minutes. Have you ever said, I can't believe what they were thinking? That's done by people who reject the truth of God's word. And we reject the truth of God's word, Paul says, you're going to believe lies. You're going to follow myths. And you listen to experts who don't know God. They open their mouth and stupid comes out. Spiritually stupid. I don't mean they're not intelligent people. I'm saying they're morally cut off from the source of wisdom because they're not listening to God's word. Their behavior demonstrates that Jesus said they're lost. And before Jesus found us, we were lost. That's why the gospel is people telling people. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread because the Lord found us. Paul says, on the other hand, God's people should welcome sound doctrine. Now, sound doctrine means healthy doctrine. It literally means hygienic doctrine. Healthy doctrine leads to spiritual health in the same way healthy eating leads to physical health. Healthy doctrine, like healthy food, is not always sweet to the taste, especially to people who love their sin. You know, your tongue can taste five major flavors. Five. Sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and umami, which means savory. So sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and savory. Most people in this culture won't eat anything in a flavor that's not immediately Attractive. However, sometimes healthy foods like kale, spinach, need to be eaten because they're good for you, not because they taste like cotton candy. In the same way, Paul says, look, sound doctrine, truth doesn't always feel good because a lot of times it confronts our selfish, sinful nature. Truth hurts us before it heals us. It forces us to conform to it. It didn't conform to us. God's word doesn't make us feel good. God's word tells us the standards by which God lives and shows us how we fail to measure up and then shows us how to live in accordance with that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Interesting example of that in Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar is the king of Babylon, strongest capital of the world at that point in time. And King Belshazzar has rejected God completely. He knew Daniel. He knew King Nebuchadnezzar, who finally um, recommitted committed his life to the Lord. He knew all about the true God, and he throws this big drunken party. And God sends a handwriting on the wall. That's where we get that proverb from. On the plaster wall of the banquet hall, and Daniel's called because the entire banquet is losing their cookies. This is written in a foreign language, the handwriting on the wall, and no one can interpret it. Daniel comes, and before he tells Belshazzar, what the handwriting means, he confronts Belshazzar with God's truth. And he says this, 
You, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted your heart against the Lord of heaven, the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and your ways you have not glorified. And we sing a song in church, don't we? It's your breath in our lungs. Whose air are you breathing right now? You know, it's interesting. It's all rented. It's all on loan. I own nothing here. I am a house guest on the planet of the king. And Daniel confronts him with the truth. And then he tells him what the middle phrase of that handwriting is. is Daniel 5, 27 says, You have been weighed in the balances and found deficient. That's what truth does. It's the standard by which God measures us. It's fascinating that this event, this banquet occurred at the very time when the city of Babylon was under siege and the Persians were at the gate and they broke in that very night and that very night Belshazzar was slain and there's no record of his repenting. Even though the enemy was at the gates and he had just experienced a divine miracle and just had been confronted by probably one of the greatest men of God in the Old Testament. And you look and you go, what's wrong with this picture? Eternity, you've been told. You're going to be judged. Repent. See, human pride wants to feel good, not to be good. That's why it refuses to obey God's word. You know, we want cotton candy. We don't want cauliflower. We, people, This culture would rather believe comfortable lies than face uncomfortable truth. And Paul says, preach the word. All of the word. And God's people listen to the word. See, it's very easy to sit in judgment. Well, I don't like what the pastor said. It makes me feel uncomfortable. That's the point. The point is I got sin in my life and I need to be confronted with the truth just like I may need chemo to kill a cancer. It's very uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. I feel all weak and wheezy. It saved your life, right? Interesting. Just real briefly, 2 Chronicles 18 tells the story of a king who did exactly what Paul said not to do. He wanted his ears tickled. He accumulated teachers who would tell him what he wanted to hear. His name was King Ahab. He was the wickedest king Israel ever had. He married the Phoenician princess Jezebel, made her queen. They imported Baal worship into the nation. They're planning to attack Ramoth-Gilead, which is a city. But before he attacks, he asks the 400 prophets who work for him to give him their advice. What do you think they're going to say? They're on his payroll. All 400 of them say, go up, God will give it into your hands. We've talked to God and he said to take it. What a surprise. They tickled his ears. However, there is one prophet of Yahweh named Micaiah, and he refuses to go along with the charade. When they asked him to go along and agree with the other 400 prophets, he said... As the Lord lives, what my God says, that will I speak. That's your and my call. We just say what God says. We're the messengers. So when Ahab asks Micah's, Micaiah's opinion, Micaiah says, God has planned to destroy you, and he's deceived these 400 prophets by a demonic spirit. And Ahab says, put him back in prison. I don't want to hear it. Feed him sparingly with bread and water until I come back in peace from this battle. Micaiah says, if you come back in peace from this battle, God has not spoken through me. 
At the end of the chapter, it says, he attacks Ramoth Gilead and a, 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 an enemy archer at random just shoots an arrow in the air. And somehow it finds Ahab and kills him. I think there might have been a little divine, angelic guidance there. When we refuse to listen to God's truth, we will believe lies and we will suffer the consequences. See, God's word is sound doctrine. It's healthy. It's good for us. Matter of fact, our lives depend on it. It's easier to reject the truth than to conform our life to the truth in the near term. In the long term, it's always better to obey the truth. Our culture, we live in a culture that has rejected God's word and as a result is becoming more and more deceived. This should not surprise you. If our culture continues to reject God, 10 years from now, they will be foolisher and foolisher and stupider and stupider spiritually than they are today. Yes? And you will say, wow, this world is really not my home. I mean, I'm way out of step. Of course. You follow truth. You follow Jesus Christ, and it's his world. That's why God's called us to preach the word. I was uh, reading Alice in Wonderland. For those of you who haven't read that, it's an interesting story. The Red Queen told Alice, Sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Yeah, our culture believes six impossible things before breakfast, of course. So our culture may be confused, but God's word is always clear. God says, look, it's real simple. Listen to my word, proclaim my word, follow my word. Let's summarize before John comes and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, in light of eternal judgment, there is no higher priority than proclaiming and obeying God's word. Number two, always be prepared to tell people what the Bible says, not what you think. You know what that means? You need to know what the Bible says. Right? I mean, if you're going to say what the Bible says, you need to know what it says. So that's why we come to church. That's why you should be in your word, in the Bible, God's word, every single day. Every single day. Carolyn's talked to us about programs you can read through the Bible in a year. If we don't have 30 minutes to give to God every day, why should he give us the other 23 and a half? I mean, that's the guidebook. You want wisdom? Open the operator's manual. Read the map. It's all written down. Number three, tell people God's truth. And keep loving them as they struggle to live according to the truth they now know. You and I are struggling to live according to the truth we now know, and God continues to love us. And lastly, all decisions are directional. When you stop listening to God's word, you will start believing lies. The good news is, when you listen to God's word, it will guide you and lead you and save you from the culture and from the foolishness of sin and myths. This is a very direct message Paul's leaving to Timothy and us. And so I commend you to what God has said. It's not what comes out of Brad's mouth. What's important is what the Holy Spirit takes from this message and sticks in your heart this week that you are to obey. That's what's important. Next week, Lord willing, we'll finish uh, 2 Timothy. We'll be talking about Paul's finishing his race, his epitaph, uh, and his last words and what the impact of what that means. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. 
Here at MANA, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.